Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right. Um, so as I said, we're, we're starting our new Torah cycle. We're beginning back at Bereshit. And already back at Genesis. So we're going to start out. We are going to spend time in Genesis, but we're going to start out in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything was made to exist through him, and nothing that was made to exist was made to exist except by him. There was life in him, and the life was light for the sons of men. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. All right, so so John opened up his gospel the same way that the book of Genesis begins, with Bereshit, in the beginning. And so he was going back to the very creation, and within the following verses of John, he speaks of how the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And, um, you know, the intent, he was, he was giving us an understanding of who Yeshua is, and saying that he was in the beginning with God and he was the word of God. And that would have spoken very specifically to the people of, of his time because it was a common theme of the word of God, the memra of the Lord. We're going to talk a lot about that today when we go do our Jesus My Rabbi Torah study. So we're not going to go a lot into it at this point in time. But the idea that John was pointing out was, of course, that Yeshua was there at the beginning and, and that, well, that the spirit of Messiah was there at the beginning, right? Yeshua, the person, he came to be uh, later, but the spirit of Messiah, the word of God, was there in the beginning. So then, this is a parallel with Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Okay, so here in the beginning, we, we see this light again, just as John was talking about. But this light that God spoke was the light of God, right? That was introduced into what had been chaos, right? When the scripture here says the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep, that was chaos, right? And God spoke light into the chaos. He brought form and order into it, right? Now, when we think about what is the light, the light is the word of God. The light is the heavenly Torah. Okay, we have, we have a Torah that was given through Moses at Mount Sinai. That was an embodiment of the divine Torah, right? Just as Yeshua also too, the word became flesh, the Torah made flesh, was an embodiment of the divine Torah. 
that pre-existed creation. So God's answer to the chaos and to the darkness was his word, was the light, was his Torah. And that's what brought order and life into what previously did not, could not possess life. It's a pretty cool picture of even in the midst of nothing, God can bring life. Right? That's restoration. So the light had to shine in the darkness in order to bring order and to bring that which is good into existence, okay? Because the chaos and the darkness was not going to have any good come from it of its own. So what is good, right? That's a good question. What is good? Everything God created was good is the short answer, okay? So in, in the first chapter here of Genesis in verse 4, we see that the light was good. In verse 10, the earth and the seas were good. Verse 12, the vegetation with fruit and seed was good. In verse 18, the luminaries that God placed in the heavens were good. In verse 21, the sea creatures and the birds were good. In verse 25, the land creatures were good. And then after God had created man... In verse 31, the scripture says, all he had made was very good. Right? So everything that God made was good. And when he looked at the whole of it, the whole of his creation, he said it was very good. So now let's go to Genesis 2, verses 8 through 9. The scripture says, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then continuing in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So here, we see a couple of things that were not good. Right? Eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not good. And then also, man being alone was not good. Now, I want to take a step back and let's try to put some uh, human reasoning into this whole thing, okay? What God created was very good, and he gave to man that which came from the vegetation, the fruit, from the trees. But then, then he, uh, he said not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But when our human reasoning, couldn't we say, but everything you made is good? And that fruit looks tasty. It looks pretty nice. What's that? By what you're saying, wouldn't that suggest that evil actually existed before he created good? Um, well, there was chaos before yeah, he created chaos. good, right? And there was the potential to commit evil. So, yes, I would say that it, the capacity and the chaos did pre-exist 
this. So basically everything was chaos until God came and chose to create. I think so. I think that's a that's a deep topic that probably deserves a lot more discussion. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would say that the existence of it, the existence of evil, was before this. The thing is, it had not yet entered into uh, the actions of man, right? Such that God's creation in this place would become defiled, right? Because before this, nothing of what God had created was defiled or evil in and of itself. But chaos did exist, and the potential for evil did exist. Even in a, in a couple of verses, we'll read about the serpent coming to deceive. Well, the serpent was acting out of evil, right? So, um, see how I would say it did exist. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so within that, it's like, well, why is the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge bad? And we might be able to come up with a few reasons why we can get around God's statement of not to eat it, which turns out that happened, believe it or not. But uh, so anyway, we'll probably come back to that one. Let's go forward on into Genesis 2, 20 through 24. Okay, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, so at this point in time, okay, all right, I will go ahead and say this. Now I was going to skip this note, but it's an interesting little tidbit. So sleep is understood to be one-sixtieth, in the, in the in tradition, in the, in the discussions of the sages, it's thought that sleep is one-sixtieth of death. Okay? This is just an interesting note to think about, okay? So if sleep is one-sixtieth of death, and then Adam was put into a deep sleep. How dead was he before he was brought back to life that he might take his bride? He, he was under some serious anesthesia to, to have that rib removed. Thank you, Diego. Very good, right? So anyway, within this, there's kind of a picture there of the, se- the second Adam, you know, like the second Adam dying, coming back to take his bride and to be one with her. Yeah, so pretty cool. Now, but the, the problem with this analogy is it's not perfect, okay? Uh because Adam, at this point, he didn't need to die. He hadn't sinned, right? Instead, God had made him, said, you don't have a, a partner suitable? Okay, I'm going to put you into a deep sleep. I'm going to take your rib. I'm going to take part of that which is you, of your unity, make it into two with the idea that the two of you will again become one. It's a pretty cool story. But okay, so he didn't need... like. He didn't need to be redeemed. He was perfect at this point in time, which actually, coincidentally, Yeshua was perfect as the one who died and then raised to get his bride. But anyway, but the question then comes up is, 
when did man become in need of being redeemed? I know this is a 101 question, okay? So let's go read in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. But the serpent was shrewder than any animal of the field that the Lord God made. So it said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from all the trees of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, of the fruit of the trees we may eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat of it and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you most assuredly won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a thing of lust for the eyes and that the tree was desirable for imparting wisdom. So she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. All right, so there's a couple things that are interesting in this passage. What was the command given to Adam originally? God said of the, of the fruit of the tree, you shall not eat. And then Eve's response to the serpent was, God said of the tree, you shall not eat its fruit or even touch it. So it's like, well, where did that come from? And I think it came from Adam. I think Adam built the first fence around the Torah. Y'all know what a fence around the Torah is? The idea is that God gives the command for us not to do something. And so we say, well, we don't want to do that. And then the question is, well, how close do I want to get to doing that thing, right? And so... The thing is, you actually build a fence around the commandment such that you don't get close to it, such that you don't violate it. There's a, remember when God was going to send his presence down on the mountain at Sinai? And he said, don't let anybody come up on the mountain or else they'll die. And then he says, oh, and build a fence around the mountain to make sure that no one comes up on the mountain. God had Moses build a literal fence around the commandment. Right, so the fences around the commandment are to prevent us from, can I say accidentally or inadvertently, getting too close such that we violate it, right? So in the case of this, it's like, I know the fruit looks tasty, okay? Don't even touch it, because what if, while you were touching it, you just ate some of it, right? Okay, so anyway, he, I think Adam gave her a fence around the Torah, but then Eve's response was, okay, this is what God said, right? Transmitted through Adam. And so she was treating it as though it was a command. But, and that can have all kinds of things that we could go off and talk about. We're not really going to go there, though. Um, but anyway, so here's the fence that was put around it. Now, we know that eating of the fruit is what brought the fall, right? And that created the need for man to be redeemed. But there's also the argument of, well, when really did sin come in in this, in this situation? Did sin start at the time that the serpent said, hey, that looks pretty tasty, right? Or was it when Eve began to dwell on it and say, you know, you're right. That does look real tasty. 
you know, and not only that, it doesn't just look tasty, but that knowledge sounds pretty good too, right? So her thought began, and I don't know how fast it, it happened, right? But the, the, the thought was introduced, at which point Eve had a choice of saying, am I going to reject the thought or am I going to entertain the thought? And then from the entertaining of the thought began the nurturing of the thought. And then the desires began to build until the desire became one with her such that she then took hold of the fruit and ate. Right? Yes. I just heard in my mind when Cain, the Lord was talking to Cain, he said, you know, it's crouching at the door. It might, don't let it overtake you, really. Uh -huh. is, yeah. Yes. That's the next point. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> that's exactly where I want you to go. I, I would like it if y'all are always a step or two ahead of me. That would be fantastic. Um, but I'm, I'm so happy that you said that because it's part of the answer, right? Um, and, and really is a lot of what I want to talk about today. Because in the scripture, when we read in Genesis that God made a distinction between the light and the dark, right? He's a God of distinction. He delineates between what is good, what is evil. And he delineates between the seventh day and the six days of creation, right? Between Israel and the nations. He makes all these distinctions. But what we often try to do is we often try to muddy the waters or remove distinction, and in so doing, actually create confusion, okay? Now, this is a complicated topic that uh, probably deserves multiple weeks of discussion. So we're going to hit, I don't know, we're going to hit some high-level aspects, but it's likely worth follow-up discussions. Okay, because I, I doubt that in the in the time that we have, uh, that I can go through it with great exhaustive aspects. But if we look at James one, thirteen through fifteen, sweet. Uh, Let no one say when he is tempted, "I am being tempted by God," for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Okay? So there are things within us, right? Lusts within us, whatever that may look like. Can you go back to the slide, please? That when fed begin to grow and grow until they actually conceive and give birth to sin, okay? When is the birth of that sin? Well, again, this is kind of a, it's a difficult answer. There are two parts of the answer, I think, maybe more. I'll give you two. <laughs> when you've become, when you have nurtured the, those thoughts and those lusts and those desires to the point that they are a part of you, you now actually are defiled, as Yeshua said. It's what's in the heart that defiles a man. But then he also says the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak, right? Once you've become one with it, 
the next obvious thing is that the overflow is going to happen and it's going to go from the inside into the outward workings, right? And then that's when the sin is committed in the earth, which damages not only the person, but those around them as well. Before it actually is acted on, it's between God and man alone. And it's only for God to know. Only God knows, right? It's once it then comes into the physical arena, now it's become between God and man and between man and man. You know, you've got both aspects, the vertical and the horizontal, okay? And it was, it was the eating that constituted the sin. If Eve had turned back and repented from taking hold of that fruit and eating it, sin would not have entered into the world at that point in time. It doesn't mean that she didn't, wouldn't have the potential to sin, but sin would not have entered. Now, granted, then, you know, let, let's, let's not uh, forget that Adam took and ate, too. I'm not trying to pin everything on Eve here, right? The Scripture explicitly says that Adam did it, right? I'm just kind of going back to the very first thing because that's where it nurtured and began. And, and it obviously had to be in Adam, too. He just needed a little bit of encouragement to, to cross the border. And once he saw someone else do it, he's like, looks like that's okay, right? <laughs> Everybody else is doing it, right? <laughs> and so, so anyway, he, uh, um, so he does this. And sin enters in. Now, so what do we have to repent of? Of course we have to repent of nurtured sinful thoughts. But a glancing thought, a temptation that comes and crosses our mind that we then reject and push away, that wasn't sin. That was a temptation. It's once we've begun to agree with it and once we've begun to make it part of us, that's when we've moved into defilement and where we need to repent and turn from it such that it's no longer a part and no longer one with us. It's to kick it out, right? But when you've gotten to the point where you, don't, you cease to care about the consequences and are willing to act on it, then you've moved into a new level of oneness with that. And that's when the sin is conceived, gives birth, and actually brings forth death. Because we know that death, or we know that the wages of sin is death. All sin creates separation between us and God, and all sin brings death. But that doesn't mean that all sins are the same either. That's something we're probably going to come back to a little bit. Because this is an important thing as well, where we have to have distinctions and understanding that there are differences recorded in Scripture about how different sins are viewed and treated. I know, well, actually, we'll just go ahead and stay there for a little while. Because I've seen this over the, over the years where, um, I don't know if you see it on Facebook or whatever, where someone's like, oh, well, they may be talking about a murderer. You're like, oh, well, like you're without sin. You know, who are you to judge? It's like, well, let's say that the person they're talking to had told a lie and had never committed some egregious sin like that. Well, is it really the same thing? No, it's not the same thing. They both end in death, so in one way it is the same, right? But on the other side, you have a whole different level of 
what someone has allowed their heart to become, okay? Like, and we will talk about Cain, and we'll talk about his response to God's questioning versus Adam and Eve's response, right? There's a different, it's different. If there's a different way that it is handled and viewed within the scripture uh, and throughout, you know, as we go through the, the study of the Torah, we'll see that there are, there are sins that incur the death penalty and there are some that, that don't, okay? So God does make a distinction. Um, and so we too should make a distinction when it's known and understand what is going on. Um, now within all of that, which we'll talk about this too, time permitting, of course, Actually, we'll get to this one no matter what. But the idea is that even when sin exists, there is still hope of repentance and there's still hope of restoration, no matter how big or how small the sin is. Right? Verse 12. What does it say? Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he was tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to all them that love him. Yeah, so he persevered under temptation. Yeah, and then, and that those who repent, because when we repent, we have an, an advocate with the Father, right? So there's always hope, no matter what the sin is. There's always hope. But it's going to require repentance, of course. Okay, so let's look, let's jump back to Genesis 4. Okay, and we'll, we'll go back to what, what Leslie pointed out. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Okay, so in this case... Anger and hatred has already entered into Cain's heart on some level. Uh, according to tradition, there's different stories about what was going on between Cain and Abel, but uh, one of the stories is that uh, Cain's sheep were crossing, or excuse me, Abel's sheep were crossing Cain's field, and it was trampling his grounds, and so Cain became angry and rose up and struck him, right? So in, in this moment where, where Cain has envy and anger and hatred in his heart, God says, you need to repent and turn for those, from those thoughts because sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. You must overcome it and not let it become one with you. But, but Cain decided what was good, similar to how Eve had decided what was good, and he said, well, what's good is to get rid of this thing that is bothering me, called my brother. <laughs> right? So, 
in both cases, when man tried to define what was good apart from what God says is good, sin then came about. But it's really easy to get uh, pulled away by circumstances, by hurts, by what you see other people doing, what you think is okay because others are doing it and they're not dying. So, okay, I'll try it too, right? But it's that part of removing ourselves from God and, and just defining for ourselves what is good according to our own reason that's going to get us into trouble. Right? So we have, to, we have to say, Lord, what do you say is good? What do you say is right and proper? Because our emotions will take us the wrong place. Our emotions will take us the wrong place. So, so Cain acted upon the anger that was in his heart, killed his brother. And at that point, he had committed an act that required judgment. Right? And the judgment that was given to him was that the ground would no longer produce for him. It wasn't, you know, if you go back to Adam, the curse for him was, you know, you're going to have to toil with the ground to produce, whereas before, you know, the ground produced for you. Now you're going to have to toil. Well, now for, for Cain, things got worse because now the ground's not going to produce for you and you're going to have to be a wanderer, right? And so God withdraws his presence from Cain. Cain actually cries out, though, and he's like, you know, this is too much. I'm done for, and God has mercy on him. And, and marks him such that he wouldn't be killed until the seventh generation, right? So he did receive a degree of mercy even in the midst of it, but he still had a consequence to bear for the sin that he carried out. Because God is a rewarder of righteousness and a punisher of wickedness. He always has been, and he, all, and he still is today. So he will be, right? That's why there's this final judgment where man will be judged according to their deeds. Such that in the world to come, God will make everything come out right. For those who suffered in this life unjustly, they'll receive greater reward in the world to come. For those who did wickedness and did not suffer in this life, they will suffer in the, in the world to come. Okay, this, this is an interesting part of understanding atonement Man, there's so many topics to really go into. So I'm, I apologize for just really grazing on things here. Um, but the sufferings in this life are an atonement for sin, is the understanding, um, such that God causes everything to come out right. Okay, so say you're deserving of judgment and of punishment. Right, you can be forgiven and you can have life, eternal life through Yeshua, but there is still God making everything to come out right and come out with justice, okay? So there could be suffering in the world to come, but if you've suffered in this life, the teaching is that your su any suffering in the world to come would be lessened. Does that make sense? It's a deep topic. It's one that certainly deserves much more discussion. We'll have to have that on the side or maybe on another Saturday. Um, but God is one who rewards righteousness and he punishes wickedness. And within all of this, 
God brings forth judgments and discipline in order to bring us back to him, right? And it's in his kindness that he brings forth judgments and punishments that are, that are designed to bring us back to him. Because if he were to allow us to go in our way, we would just continue in our way further and further from him, creating a greater divide, creating more chaos, destroying the relationship that exists. So sometimes we might see difficulty, we might see judgment as harsh or bad, but in God's eyes, what is it? Right? That's the thing. Do we esteem it by our own human nature, by our own emotions, by our own definition of what's good? Or do we look to what does the Scripture say and how does God act? When Israel sins and has turned away from him and has done enough to be worthy of destruction, what does God do? He takes a mashkon, a substitute, a pledge in the place of Israel and sends Israel into exile. So in the case of the temple, the second temple, he destroyed the second temple and he sent the children of Israel into exile. The temple was taken as a substitute for the people and it, it was destroyed in their place. Okay, so very much so too, just like Yeshua who likened himself unto the, temp unto the temple, right? He was taken in place of mankind that deserved destruction such that we could have life, even though we remain in exile and wait, await his return. He was taken so that we wouldn't be taken. Okay? And in that, there was compassion and mercy and grace given to each of us, to all who would call on his name. It certainly wasn't compassion and mercy towards Yeshua. But it was love. Because he so loved the world that he was willing to give his son and that his son was willing to give himself. Right? And his love for his brothers, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so we have in this, in, a, in, in our own human nature, an inability to grasp the wisdom of God. Right? His thoughts are higher than ours and his ways are higher than ours. And we can't reason out exactly all that it should be. In Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, Scripture says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Okay? So, again, this is just a warning of, of our heart and our emotions and our perception isn't always what it should be. Um, for example, if we look back to what happened with Adam and Eve, when God confronted them, what happens? Eve says, or Adam says, I got it from the woman you gave me. Okay? <laughs> Don't look at me. You gave me this woman. Okay? And then she says, wait a minute. It's not my fault. It's the serpent. The serpent told me that this was good. 
okay? I don't know who the serpent pointed at. He's probably like, yeah, it was me. <laughs> He's like, hi, I got this, right? But, but the thing is, so, so what does the scripture say about the serpent, right? That he was exceedingly crafty, more than any others, right? It doesn't say the serpent came and he was evil and twisted and obvious in his intentions, right? Such that Eve should have known. Instead, he was understood to be brilliant and beautiful, right? And crafty and deceptive. I uh, don't know if I should mention this, but this, uh, this movie called uh, Tommy Boy. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a pretty funny movie, but sorry. Anyway, <laughs> if I need to repent, I will repent. But okay, but at one point in the movie, Chris Farley's talking to uh, this guy who's a competitor, and he's like telling the competitor all the things that will destroy Chris Farley's company. And uh, anyway, so David Spade... Like, what were you doing? And Chris Farley goes, well, he seemed like a nice guy. And David Spade goes, well, he seemed like a nice guy. You know, and so I really like that quote. The serpent seemed like a nice guy, you know, but he's not a nice guy, okay? But anyway, they all had excuses for their sin. It didn't matter. God didn't say, oh, oh I understand. The, the serpent's crafty. You're fine. You can stay here in the garden with me. Everything's good. No, he said there's actually judgment that comes. And, and so he sent Adam and Eve out of the garden into exile. And then the garden of Eve was shut. That place that God had made where he could have unheard of intimacy and companionship with man. And tell me that didn't grieve God. That's why he created man. Was to be with him. And now he had to send him out. But he knew that it was good. Because he still had a plan. Right? That he was going to bring restoration. So we can say, well, God, where's the compassion and mercy in that? Why? Why? You know? Why didn't you just say, it's okay, we're all right? Because he can't. Because he's a, he punishes wickedness and he rewards righteousness. And he must have a bride that is pure such that he can dwell with that bride. Okay? So, you know, I mentioned that the, the issue of Seeing all sins the same is a muddying of the waters and um, causes us not to be grieved as much as we should be when sins occur or even to take sins lightly, right? Another thing that has gone on within the body of believers for a while is a free grace movement, okay? Where, hey, there's grace for that. Eh, don't worry. It's all good. Jesus paid for it. As opposed to a brokenness over sin, as opposed to a shock at the depravity that man can go to. Now, I'm not a fan of people who tell lies, you know. Or let me see, I'm not a fan of the lies, okay, because we're not talking about the people, okay, because you love the people, you hate the sin. So I take back that word. Okay, I hate lies. 
right? But I hate murder a lot more. I hate sexual abuse much more. The damage done by these things are far greater than what some of the lighter sins may be, even though the wage of every sin is death. Okay? We can't look at them the same. We can still love the person, but we also have to take action when, when, they're, when, uh, when we see sin. We don't just wink at it and say, that's okay, no problem. Because grace was not free. Okay? Yeshua earned every bit of the merit through his life, through his perfect life and his complete surrender of himself and all that he suffered. And through his sufferings, we receive grace when we repent. If we don't repent, you don't get grace. Right? We've talked a lot about repentance over the past few months. But one thing we really need to learn about repentance, and I know I've said it before, I'm going to say it again though, you know, it's more than remorse, it's more than being sorry, it's more than feeling guilty or shame, it is a turning away from sin, it is a removal of the sin, okay, and it can't just be a removal of the sin, it's got to be a removal of the heart attitude as well, because if you don't remove the heart attitude, you'll be right back into the sin, Okay, We need purification all the way from the action all the way to a cleanness of heart. That's what Yeshua said too. He said, look, you know, you're whitewashed tombs. You're doing everything right on the outside, but inside is all kinds of death and destruction. Right? So we have to get it all. We have to deal with the actions, and, then we, and we have to deal with the heart. We have to do both. But if we're at a place where we're already acting out on what is in the heart, we're in a darker spot. And we've got to turn from it. Right? So, Yeshua paid a great price. Grace is not free, but it is freely given to those who repent and those who will turn to the Lord. Because He is all about restoration. He doesn't want to leave us where we are. That's why he sent the light into the darkness, because he wasn't okay with just letting his creation go off to destruction, even though he knew what was going to befall his son, and his son knew what would befall him as well, and he said, yes, I'll go. So we know, you know, within all this talk, right, we know that the kindness of God leads us to repentance, right? think that's something that's fairly often said, and it's true, but we don't always understand kindness either. Let's go to Romans 2, 4 through 8. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's a key, right? Because I often quote it as, the kindness of God leads us to repentance, and it does. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, the question is, will it? It's meant to. 
Now, what are we going to do with the kindness that he shows us? Some of his kindness is forbearance and patience. But there's a time when his forbearance and patience ends, and, just a, and judgment comes to accomplish what that perseverance and patience did not accomplish in us. I'd like to respond at the patience and perseverance, or, you know, uh, I'd like to re respond at that point in time. <laughs> right? But it says, but because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is, will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So God does not desire us to come under this wrath. So he brings about judgments that will bring us out of that such that we don't fall into it, such that our heart will be softened. And it's a kindness to the sinner that judgments come, and it's a kindness to those around them that judgments come. Okay? Think about this. Like, if there's a murderer, and you say, this murderer deserves death, okay? But someone's like, well, where's the compassion in that? What about the restoration? What about the chance... For redemption. What about the mercy? What about the grace? It's like, well, yeah, if we could let that person go, and that would be a mercy and a grace and a kindness to him. But if they haven't repented, what about all the other people they're going to kill and the loved ones who will suffer? Is it a kindness and mercy to them that we should show kindness to the one who is unrepentant? You see, if we let our emotions run with it, we'll just say, oh, no, no, give grace and kindness and compassion to everybody all the time. And we will wreak chaos. Right? That's why God doesn't allow that. He brings punishments that may seem severe at times so that the children of Israel will see and they will fear and obey. Like, not just to run around in fear, but to revere God and his word such that they actually take it to heart and act upon it, right? And such that the continued destruction is not being spread throughout all of his body, which would destroy his body, okay? So these are kindnesses that God brings. And you think about it within parenting. Like, if you never disciplined your child, man, you're going to have a rough child. <laughs> you're going to have a child that does some pretty evil things and looks a lot like the secular, godless world, right? As opposed to the one who's been raised to know who their creator is and to understand what is right and what's wrong. And speaking of the whole free grace and the sin is sin thing, I wonder if that's not why the church looks so much like the world. It's because we say, ah, all sin's the same. Grace, grace to that. Don't worry, you're good. Okay? Because we've lacked discipline, we've lacked accountability, we've lacked actually grieving when we see a sin. We've got to wake up. And it starts with us individually to say, what is in me? What's in my heart? Okay? And then, when, then we can begin to work with others as well, right? 
It's not that we don't turn a blind eye. All the, you know, I mean, but there's an aspect of you have to start with yourself and with your own heart and allow God to redeem and restore and refresh. And you have to repent. You have to lay things down that you like or that sound good or that seem good and turn from those such that you can take hold of the good. Okay, that's repentance. And that is where life comes in. That's where the light dispels the darkness. That's where the Torah comes in and has its intent of creating a bride ready for Yeshua, of creating a people ready for the presence of God to dwell in their midst. So within all this, the hellfire and brimstone, I still love you. <laughs> I told you you love the person, you hate the sin. Um, so I, I tell you what I, what, I, what I get fired up about is I see ideas and thoughts that create destruction and they make me angry. The person who has those views does not make me angry, even though I may get a little fired up. But it's because it creates destruction. It prevents God's perfect will from taking place. It prevents restoration when we hold on to these things. I've always said we're, never, we're not saved by our theology, but our ideas can really be destructive because our ideas and our thoughts and some of our theologies, will, they're going to affect our behavior, right? And if our behavior is not a good behavior, then we're bringing death into the world instead of life, even though we are carriers of the light of God. Right? So we have to align ourselves with God, with his word, with his heart, such that we can then carry it and have the light shine through us as he intends. So it's like, well, where does, where does this all leave us, right? God's Torah creates order in, from the chaos. God's ways create order. It actually snatches victory out of the hands of death, right? And it lifts man out of the depths of darkness and into spiritual heights in God, okay? But when it's not heated, things get worse, and that's what we saw with Adam and Eve and then continuing on to Cain. And then within the scriptures going through into Genesis 6, 5 through 7, Scripture says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's pretty bleak, right? Things had gotten dark to the point of being ready for complete destruction. And it would be headed for destruction because God was going to send the flood to destroy all living things from before him. Right? But Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That one verse changed everything. But that one verse wasn't just one verse where God said, hey, Noah, you've got my favor. It was a life lived by Noah of faithfulness toward God by which 
he earned, he earned grace in the eyes of the Lord. That word translated as favor is hen, it's grace. It's the word for grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He merited favor before God. And in his merit, he and his family were spared. This is a picture of Yeshua, guys, because Yeshua earned more merit, earned more grace than anyone ever in all of creation because no one has ever lived as faithfully or endured as much suffering unjustly. And found grace in the eyes of the Lord such that not only was Yeshua able to uh, be saved and carry his family through, but the whole world, right? But here's the precursor, the solution. God sends a redeemer. You remember when uh, Noah was born to Lamech, he said, you know, this one's name is Noah because um, God will give us rest, essentially through him, which Noah is from the word Nahum, which is comfort, okay? So here our comforter, has come, right? Our comforter has come. And so Noah came as a type of redeemer to show us what was to come and through whom God preserved mankind. So we have hope in this. We have hope in the resurrection of Yeshua. We have hope in the life that he brings. We have hope that he can restore anything. When we come to him, when we repent, and Isaiah 42, 6. I'm just a couple of verses here. I want to read from Isaiah for, uh, from our after reading. Because we need to know who we are and what God's called for us, right? He says, in righteousness, okay, I'm the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. Now, in this specifically, he's speaking to you. Yeshua as being appointed as a covenant to the people and a light to the nations, right? But in us, he's called us in righteousness. And as ambassadors to Yeshua, he's also called us to be a light to the nations. And continuing in 42, 21, the scripture says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the Torah great and glorious. So this word that preexisted was great and glorious. God revealed the word, the word in this world as the Torah, and he, he desired to make it great and glorious. And then he did make it great and glorious even further through the person of Yeshua, who is the perfect representation of Yeshua and reveals the Father to us. So we might become like him. Okay. And in Isaiah 43.10, says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, there will be none after me. But you are my witnesses and servant whom I have chosen. And in Isaiah 60, verse 1 through 2, Scripture says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has shone upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people's, but the Lord will shine upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. That's the word made flesh that came to dwell among us, the light that came in the darkness, that light that has shined upon us, and now the light that shines in us and through us, that others may see our, our, what? our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, our good works defined by what God says are the good works. So he's given us all that we need for life, 
And now he just says, walk in that light and have that light that is within you shine forth and dispel the darkness because the darkness will not overtake it. So, amen. Um, now, Jared's got uh, something to share for the month of Cheshvan. Let me say a quick prayer before he comes up. Lord, we love you and we give you thanks. We give you glory for you are good. Lord God, we ask that you would align our hearts with us, or that we would align our hearts with you, bring us closer to you. Help us to be grieved for what you're grieved for. Help us to be compassionate and understanding. Help us to act toward one another in love, always with an eye towards redemption, towards restoration, towards renewal. For Lord, it is not ours to bring judgment but yours, for you know the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know all of the circumstances. Nothing is hidden from your sight, and you are righteous and true and good. So, Lord, we, we, align, we align right now, and we say, yes, Lord, we agree with you. Give us your heart. Give us your eyes. May we be your hands and feet, and may we walk in faithfulness and truth and be willing to lay down anything, Lord, that stands in the way of our union with you. Lord, we bless you, we exalt you, and we thank you for these things in the name of Yeshua. Amen. All right. It's hot up here. That's right. Nice. Good work, Chris. All right. Um, we are celebrating today uh, Rosh Hodesh, the new moon. Uh, as we've talked about before, um, the Jewish calendar is both um, based on the sun and the moon. The days are when the sun set and rise, and then the months are when the moon, um, when there's a new moon. So um, this is the eighth month, Rosh Hodesh Heshvan. Uh, 5781. Uh, it is the eighth biblical month. It's the second civil month in the Jewish calendar, and it actually starts tonight. So tonight is Rosh Chodesh. Uh, its meaning is eighth month. All right, there we go. All right, so, but also, and the root word is Hesh, which means quiet, still. We have just come from a very busy season. And so now it's <sighs> Heshvan. <laughs> so, um, uh, and so it means quiet. Um, the, the root word of Hesh means quiet. Uh, after very active Elul and Tishri, it is a good time to be quiet and to be still. There's also another word for the month. It is uh, Bul. Uh, you can find that in First Kings, and that means to rain and to flood. Um, so this month begins Israel's rainy season. Um, it's also what is known as the early rains in Scripture. So rain is what is needed to cause seeds to produce its fruit. Um, and so it shows a dependence upon God to produce fruit. There's only so much you can do. You can pre prepare the land, you can till the land, you can plant the seeds, but you've just, you have to have God produce the rain. Uh, so this is a time to trust, to rest, 
and to lean in on God's provision, for he will rain on you for what you have labored for these past couple months. Um, water and rain can produce growth for what, the Lord, what is of the Lord's, and it can produce judgment and cleanse and wash away what is evil. So rain and water is twofold. It will grow what is God's, it will wash away and cleanse what is evil. Um, and so this is, uh, there are no holidays this month. Um, but yeah, we can, but there is, this is a month, this month actually commemorates. So there are some things that did happen this month. So we'll go through some of that. Um, speaking of flood, uh, we'll talk about that here in a second. But this month, it commemorates the passing of the matriarch Rachel this month. Uh, in Heshvan. Um, there are no holidays or special mitzvahs this month. Some of the sages actually believe that this is the month that is reserved for the time of the Messiah to inaugurate the third temple. Um, so King Solomon, speaking of temples in the month of Heshvan, King Solomon completed the seven-year building of the temple during Heshvan, but was not dedicated until the following Tishri, which is a reason why some of the sages say that this month is dedicated for that third temple. All right. And that is what is mentioned in first Kings six thirty eight, And that's when they call the eighth month bull, B-U-L. Uh, and bull meaning flood. All right. So the flood that is known that the flood of Noah, Noach began on the 17th of Heshvan and ended the following year on the 27th of Heshvan. You always think 40 days. Well, there's 40 days of rain, and I'm, there's an element of all of that. So there's the, a whole year and 10 days um, was involved with the flood. So uh, Noah brought his sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord promised to never flood the earth again on the 28th of Heshvan. Um, and so even though there is nothing to, no, say there is not nothing. This is a great month. It's a great month of rest, of allowing the Lord to water. In fact, there are, I've read this while I was researching, I think if it hasn't rained by the 17th of Heshvan um, in Israel, I know there's a group of people that will start to fast and pray and, and beg, okay, God, let's, let's bring the rains. This is your time to rain. This is your time to water um, well, all that labor that we've done. Uh, and so it's a, it's a time of dependence upon God. It's a time to rest uh, and just allow him to just water what we have laid before him. Um, so let's, let's think about that as, uh, as we celebrate Heshvan, as we celebrate Rosh Hodesh. So real quick, let's just say a, a quick prayer and I'll hand this back to, uh, hand this, hot podium back to Chris, and we will continue on. We'll celebrate the goodness of God. So may it be your will, Lord God and God of our fathers, that you renew for us a good month in our Yeshua, in our Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.